thrusters won't stop firing. I think I'm being followed. My dad is turning green, like literally green. My last nav check put me on the range point four. This is control. Be reasonable. Keep calm and remain on the guard frequency. Citizens, civs, captains, and commanders, you've tuned to the guard frequency. And as all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the guard. This is episode 164 of the Best Damn Space Sim podcast ever and was recorded on Friday, April 14th and made available for download Tuesday, April 18th over at guardfrequency.com. I'm Jeff. I'm Henry. And I'm Ostra. This week's show is going to be a long one, so we're going to be shaking things up a little. First, we hit the flight deck and see what news from your favorite space sims has landed as we cover FPS and the Javelin for Star Citizen. Then, for Elite Dangerous, we check out 2.3 The Commanders and discuss the community's reaction now that it's live. After that, we tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. Then, if you're still with us, we bring you our interview with Doug Drexler, visual effects artist of some relatively unknown productions such as the Star Trek franchise, the Star Trek movies, and Battlestar Galactica. If you need to look those up, links will be in the show notes. That takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on with the show and see what news has hit the flight deck. 3175 Port Bay, hands on approach, checkers green, call the ball. Don't get technical with me. Star Citizens Around the Verse show spent its time in the UK this week, checking in on how things are coming with the FPS and the sounds in the game. A lot of work is going into player interaction mechanics, such as orientating objects when putting them down, and having avatars push the correct buttons on the screens. For FPS, the big mechanic they're tweaking is fatigue and stamina. The system will disallow certain actions if you don't have enough energy to perform them. That can be affected by the equipment you're wearing and how much damage you've taken. So if you're in heavy armor lugging around a heavy machine gun and you've taken a few hits, you may not be able to vault over those cargo containers. On the audio front, the sound engineers are working on ensuring that the sound is properly propagating from room to room in enclosed areas. They're also working on the system for handling the extreme amount of dialogue for Squadron 42. And finally, the visual team is doing a whole bunch of work to polish up ship and weapon appearance and animations. For backers who are fans of the big ships, this week's episode was a treat. A significant amount of time was spent going over the Aegis Javelin. Originally, the Javelin was designed because the team decided they needed another capital ship to bridge the gap between the Idris and the Bengal. Because the Idris has already been designed and the Javelin was coming from the same manufacturer, the design team could borrow a lot of the terms of aesthetics and layout. They estimate that the design is about 60% recycled from the Idris and then 40% unique. They also made it bigger because apparently that's just what happens after the Brits get their hands on things. For reference, the empires, housing costs in London's, and books you've had to read in literature classes. One thing the designers are particularly proud of with the Javelin is that its floor plan is designed with entirely separate functional areas in mind. Basically, this means that it should be visually obvious what section of the ship one is in by the look and feel. For example, the crew area is a lot softer and quieter and cleaner than the engineering section, where there's a lot more exposed machinery, moving parts, and less polish. The floor plans have also been designed with first-person combat in mind, and the designers assure us that running around having a shootout on the ship is just as much fun as doing it in a bespoke FPS level. As for the systems on the ship, the designers are excited about the moving parts they were able to add. 
First, the different sections of the ship are designed to seal off in the event of a breach or extensive damage. That includes large bulkhead doors that seal to ensure the integrity. No word yet on motion capture for a Geordi LaForge roll under the door animation. The hangar of the Javelin is not proportionally as big as the Idris, but the designers are proud of the elevator system. Ships essentially land on the same elevator that takes them down to the hangar area. Finally, the Javelin doesn't carry as many ships because it is, quote, caked with turrets, unquote. Several of the main gun turrets are actually on rails, so the guns can traverse back and forth for better firing solutions and, when not in use, they traverse to the rear of the ship and use the hull's design for better protection. They're hoping it will make it less obvious if the turrets are armed, so potential attackers will have to carefully consider whether the Javelin is waiting for them. All of this information was prefaced with a very nice trailer. In about three minutes long, it has extended shots of the interiors of the ship and shows many of the systems discussed in action, including the transversing turrets and hangar elevators. On the interior shots, there were a number of varied avatars moving around, though they were still all male ones. It is possible there was a cameo Mark Hamill's avatar on screen. Backers will have to review to be sure, but the devs did say that the Javelin model plays a significant role in Squadron 42, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility. So did either of you guys get to see the uh, the reveal on ATV? Yeah, not me. I spent most of the day looking at the stuff that came up in Elite this week. Actually, I spent more than half my day flying. It was nice. It was reminiscent of the... Reminiscent of the ship commercials they used to do, but not like the pure ad ones, more just the um, the ones that show off the the look and feel. But it's it looks like a nice ship, and it's got a lot of uh, fun moving parts to it, uh, like those hangars and the, the turrets. The turrets sound really interesting to me. I like the way they're talking about using part of the ship as a way to kind of hide your intentions um, as a pilot in that ship. That's interesting. But I wonder if people will be able to see from a distance whether or not they're really deployed. I mean, the ship is... This is the second largest ship, uh, player-controlled ship, that we know of so far. I forget the exact size of it. And apparently it wouldn't rem- it wouldn't matter if I remembered <laughs> what they said because the UK made it bigger. But I guess some of the main turrets are the ones on rails. And then there are a bunch of other smaller turrets so the ship is just festooned with guns and then the fighters that it launches are all launched from pads that recess into the hull and then when they're launching the fighters they come up and be and get flushed with the hull so the idea is that if you approach this thing and it's ready for you it can just deploy all of its elevators, launch its fighters, and then its turrets spring out and suddenly it's like got twice as much firepower to bring to bear as it did from a distance. But even if it doesn't do a full deployment, it's still got a lot of guns that are just ready to shoot. So what do you guys think about the uh, stamina changes they're making to uh, first-person shooter mode? It's, It's an interesting mechanic. I know it's not one that's particularly popular with modern shooters at least the the twitchy ones but it's it's an interesting target because i feel like they're trying to do it as a way to increase realism the problem is that most people are equating in fps's nowadays most people equate realism with basically one shot kills or one shot disables because you know in real life 
most of the time, if you get shot, you're pretty much done. Unless you fall near a health pack. Well, yeah, but I mean... <laughs> so, I think this is supposed to be, like, you can't just soak up bullets and ignore it. There will be an actual consequence. My concern is that it's going to just equally annoy everybody, because the people who enjoy the, like, I can soak up bullet shooting won't be able to play that way anymore, and the realists will just argue that this isn't realism because if I take a hit, I should be dead. I shouldn't just be, you know, straining to do things I could do before. I don't think that's the case. I, I think they've talked about before that getting shot in the arm, you might lose the use of that arm unless you get medical attention. Getting shot in the leg, you might lose that leg unless you get medical attention, and so on and so forth. I mean, we they've covered the health stuff before. I think the stamina thing like they explained is I, I don't want to have this I don't want to be able to move if I'm dressed in heavy armor carrying a heavy you know gatling gun of some kind I should not have the same movement capabilities as I do as lightly as a light armored pistol packer I think that's where that comes into play yeah I agree yeah no and, and I agree with that one I'm just a little because they mentioned that if you take damage and you're wearing heavy armor, it's it's going to be, like, harder or impossible to do certain feats of agility, like vaulting or whatever, and I don't know if that's going to go over as well. But I do agree with you, Jeff. There should be obvious disadvantages or change, at least changes in the performance of the character if you decide to, you know, strap on as much armor as possible and grab the biggest gun. I think that's exactly what they're saying, honestly. Reading through uh, what we have here, it looks like that's exactly what they're doing. And that'll probably be positive in the long run. People will probably still complain about it, probably half of them. But that's pretty much the same with any new mechanic you introduce, right? I mean, people are looking at the first-person shooter portion of Star Citizen as like a Twitch-based shooter game. So that's probably why they were people were a little upset when it came out and you saw people in the videos taking a ton of shots before they go down. I think we ought to make sure that we don't start pigeonholing um, Star Citizen. Star Citizen is not a first-person shooter. Right. Star Citizen is not a space combat shooter. Star Citizen is a universe. And as such, it's going to behave like a universe. Or hopefully it will. I think our expectations need to be evaluated and make sure that we are really know what we're expecting out of it. Because... If you're a first-person shooter and think that you're going to get a first-person shooting game, you're going to be highly disappointed. Yeah, because first-person shooting scenarios will probably be relatively few and far between, because boarding a ship is hard. Yeah, I can see that. Is, uh, is Squadron 42 is going to be more first-person shooter oriented, though, right? You're going to have a lot of uh, first-person sequences there. It's supposed to be... I mean, it's supposed to have um, scripted first-person shooter sections to it, but I don't know that it's necessarily going to be a significant amount of gameplay. I mean, even the the shots we saw of the, when they were doing the motion capture interviews or videos showing us the behind the scenes, it looks like, you know, there's at least one case where you're going to be teamed with the Mark Hamill character fighting your way through a ship, either after some catastrophe or after some boarding action. But other than that, it's not clear how many ground-based missions you're going to have. So our Star Citizen community question tonight is, what do you think of the Javelin? 
Did that avatar in fact have the Mark Hamill based facial features? Tell us your thoughts through our usual channels. Details coming up after the feedback. It's been a buggy week this week in Elite Dangerous. And no, they didn't release new SRVs. Update 2.3 was released, and some surprisingly large issues have accompanied the launch. Frontier has noted a significant error in the background sim, leading to an upcoming rollback of galactic controlled data to a pre-2.3 state. This has put a damper on many player groups' efforts to expand and compete over their holdings. On a lighter note, the Packhound Powerplay missile launchers appear to generate no heat and spend no ammo if they're fired by a multi-crew crewmate. Unfortunately, this does not appear to be meant as a multiplayer incentive and will be fixed. Explorers are having trouble with the route plotting on the galactic map, as well as finding that advanced discovery scanners are not functioning after being repaired by repair modules. Xbox players are in need of a workaround for an issue that locks them out after a multi-crew session instead of giving them the menu options to return to the game. Having this many serious problems after a reasonably lengthy beta period has proved a recipe for frustration for many commanders. Nonetheless, the consensus is that while multi-crew may not yet be significantly rewarding, it is a fun and flavorable addition to the game, especially for explorers who are otherwise trapped in the deep space until their return to civilization. In fact, explorers are already requesting that crew members be able to man the SRV, or even control the turret while another player drives. So there seems to be room for growth as well. The Shiv and many other players are enjoying the Hollow Me editors, though Shiv's taste in a hedgehog-like appearance may be questionable at best. Also, improvements to the third-person camera tools and loading times have been excellent, though perhaps default controls for the camera would have been nice so folks freshly installing the update could play with it immediately. All in all, a mixed start. The core features themselves show promise, but the accompanying bugs, many of which affect areas of the game not substantially changed or improved in 2.3, are a major drain. All of that is absolutely true. <laughs> Mixed start. Yeah, so have there been any statements from Frontier as to why you know, they had a multi-week beta and then their launch had this many issues? I haven't heard an official statement, but it seems to be more of what we're used to from them with updates and that's unfortunate you know as a big fan of elite i kind of want it to succeed you know and i want to see them do better but they every time they come out with an update for elite it seems like it's full of bugs and things crash and you know especially the xbox bug where people are getting locked out after multi-crew that's the feature you're bringing people in to play right now and it's the thing that's locking them out and causing them to have to restart the game that's game breaking there i don't see how that could not have been caught or why it didn't show up initially. Yeah, did it not show up in beta, or was it just not taken care of? I'm also not very thrilled with their idea of uh, not reversing our decision on multi-crew payouts. I really think it's a... I mean, I listened to Shiv and Tony the other night, and it's like, man, that's not even worth my time. And I think everybody feels that way, too. I'm not sure what they're thinking there, honestly. Between the limitations with not being able to cross over wings with multi-crew and then crippling right. the multi-crew payouts... It's just, it's hardly worth it. It is fun. You know, it is fun to get together with friends and it's fun to sit in the left seat uh, or the right seat in the Anaconda, you know, and look around the huge bridge from another perspective. But when the payout's not there, what are you, what are you doing with your time? You're trying to earn money in game anyway. Yeah, the, the scope of these issues is just baffling, though. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't play, so I don't have a, as good a sense of how much the... Uh, the impact is like actually the 
the missile launcher thing, you'd sort of expect that. Like yeah. that would that should be the oh well this is the one they missed. Everybody has, you know, infinite auto fire missile launchers. Oh well. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean people would be complaining about it, but everyone would go, Okay, we can understand you've got this one weapon system out of the you know, dozens they have that happens to be acting weirdly and it's interfacing with the new multi-crew mechanic, so that makes sense. But the rest of it is just weird. Yeah. Uh, It also, the features feel a little incomplete too. Like, we're asking, can we please let someone drive our SRV? But shouldn't that have been a feature already? Honestly? When you consider that I can jump in a fighter in space, I should be able to jump in in an SRV on the ground. Yeah, I agree. I feel like they're missing a lot. There's no difference between, they're just vehicles. I mean, they're just vehicles. If you consider one a vehicle that you can fly and one that you can, you know, drive. Aren't the SRVs in Horizons only? They are, and maybe that's why. You know, they are uh, Horizons only, because you can't land on a planet without Horizons. Right, so that's, I mean, that was my thought, is maybe if, now fighters aren't Horizons only, right? Those are for everybody? Yeah, and 2.3 is uh, full of updates for everybody, too. There's there's updates for everybody. It's just, it seems incomplete not to be able to put someone in my SRV for whatever reason. I understand if it's a different, something different that they have to program, and I know everybody comments on video games and says all they have to do without thinking, oh, what they really have to do because they don't understand the coding or they don't understand the development process. But with a feature like that, where you're multi-crewing and people are supposed to be able to take your auxiliary vehicles out, your fighters, or control your guns or control your scanners, it seems incomplete that you can't drop someone in your SRV and then go attack a ground installation together. But everything else aside, I am having fun with 2.3, but I'll say it's not been because of multi-crew. I've been back out on another exploration mission to the Maya system, trying to find out whatever's going on with the aliens and whatnot there. And I haven't found anything new since the update. The systems, I think, were un- were locked in beta. They're unlocked now, but I haven't found anything interesting. There is a bug where there's a station on the ground that's not uh, not loading properly, but that's that's just a bug that's been reported. No more contact with aliens in the region, surprisingly. I flew around for like three and a half hours today and wasn't able to get hyperdicted by an alien. Uh, whether I was carrying an unknown probe or not. So that was surprising. So do you think the system locking might have been something they were intending to release and then they couldn't get it finished and pulled it out before the actual code drop? I think that's likely. Because actually, if that's the case, that might explain some of the other things. Because if you think about it, particularly focusing in on this territorial control issue that cropped up if they were going to remap the galaxy so to speak and give a significant portion or prepare to give a significant portion of it to the control of the thargoids and then decided to put yank the code because they weren't ready to deploy it that could have had the side effect of messing up the player control aspects at least because then they would have been working in systems that were close to doing the same thing. Yeah, it could be. Who knows? Or your uh, foil hat might be too tight. Who knows? Could be. I'm attempting to do the Tony conspiracy crafting role. We have to fill the void since he didn't come today. 
There was one interesting discovery in deep space, though. I don't know if you guys saw the pictures of the pumpkins out past the California Nebula. There are some really, really large things that look kind of like pumpkins, like gourds of some kind. Some of them are round, some of them have kind of a pear shape. And they're, uh, they're growing near a ground station in the uh, California Nebula. Very interesting. But once again, though, you know, this new um, alien life that we're finding growing on, you know, it's plant life, apparently, or something organic, it's not intelligent, that's growing on the ground um, on this moon. It's something else that doesn't show up on your scanners at all. You have to stumble upon it, and you have to be within maybe three kilometers of the surface to see it at all, maybe even lower. So so you're saying that we can land, we're now landing in atmospheric uh, planets? No, this isn't atmospheric. These things are like the barnacles or the brain trees that were discovered earlier, um, where they grow on airless worlds in clusters. The, the barnacles aren't really clustered, but the brain trees are. Um, it's similar to that. It's just kind of a field of these interesting uh, these things growing out there. It's it is cool, and you can you can shoot these little uh, growths on the outside of the pumpkins and get materials. Uh, you get minerals and things. Mundane ones or anything unique about them? Just everything that you... They're, they're minerals you would find. I don't think they're unique. I saw a couple of different minerals I think picked up from them in some video. But nothing, nothing, you know, out of the ordinary. Though you could go there and stock up on minerals. If you could find one of these things. Well, being persistent, it's always going to be near that base. And because it doesn't show up on your scanners, at least it's in with, within visual range of a landing base so people will find it. But I kind of am bummed that there's so much stuff in Elite that's out there that your scanner doesn't even say there's an anomalous reading nearby. It doesn't say anything. You literally have to be on top of it by accident to find it. And I think that's why it takes so long to find anything at all in Elite. Do you think that's intentional? or? It is. I'm sure it is. But look at how much more fun the alien ruins were once the engineer Ram Ta gave us the ability to find them when we're within, I think, one and a half light seconds or three light seconds of a planet with an alien ruin on it, it'll come up and tell us on our scanner there's an alien ruin here, and you can land right at it. I'd like to see something like that for these organic growths that are growing all over out there, just something that says, hey, you know, we've got organic compounds down there. When you scan the planet, something. It doesn't even have to say where it is. Tell us it's there so we know to scan that planet, to look at that planet. Fly around it. Give us something to do. Because I'm an explorer, I like to go out. I like to fly around and look at things, but I don't like to feel like I'm not finding anything. And I've been playing Elite for years and don't expect to be the first person to find anything. But I'd like to stumble across something I didn't have the coordinates for beforehand. No, that, that makes sense as a goal. This week's Elite Dangerous Community Question. So what do you think is the reason for all the bugs? Are you enjoying the new features that do work? We want to hear your take on it. Send your opinions through our standard contacts. Details are just around the corner. But now it's time for news we didn't use. Over at Inove, the devs are having a debate on carrier design for Infinity Battlescape. Long and thin or short and stubby? Why not long and stubby? Which should win? We want to hear your input. Head over to the forums. The links are in the show notes. The last major update before the full release of Everspace brings a mysterious alien race, fast travel portals, and functional cockpit displays, as well as numerous additions and improvements to the fast-paced space shooter. Full release is set for May 26th.
What would long and stubby look like? I don't know. I, 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 you know, it's like because you said that, and I thought about it for a good minute. Well, I want, like, I, I want people to think about it for a good minute anyway. I mean, think about it. I mean, why can't there be a new design uh, for carriers or something? I mean, really long and thin. Why not long and fat? Yeah, long and wide at least. Yeah. Now that we're all caught up with the latest news, let's tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. Okay, buddy, what's on your mind? We're all friendlies! So let's just be friendly! Some say he knows the quickest way to kill a circus, and that's to go straight for the juggler. But all we know is he's called the Shiv, and he helped put together this week's feedback. Recap of last week's community questions... For Star Citizen, are you using the new Spectrum site? Is the shutdown of the old forums going to cause you separation anxiety? And the Elite Dangerous community question, are you going to be ponying up some cash for a new look now that the prices have dropped? And what do you think is going to happen when the Thargoids show up? Sean Newboy writes in and says, Highly entertaining. Not yet, no. Forums come and go in MMOs. Renegade Shank writes, Anxiety. And then he put in a gif of Sheldon from Big Bang Theory breathing in and out of a bag. Ken from Chicago took Ken's shadow up on his request to use complete sentences with this next feedback. Ken writes, Lest I horrify Henry, and I think he meant Ken's shadow, with having to decipher my chicken scratch, I shall more eloquently enunciate my elocution effectively eliminate erroneous explanations of my extemporaneous exposition. Do I care about guard frequency dropping the Star Citizen crowd funding updates? Honestly, my eyes, ears, glazed over when they reached 1 million in funding. I hadn't realized the game was over 145 million. Maybe you could announcement them reaching big funding milestones maybe every 50 or 100 million mark. Can manually operated turrets be a fun addition in Star Citizen in specific and space sims in general? And he writes and responds and says, of course, sure. You could have remote controlled turrets controlled by the pilot at the cost of limiting the number of targets a single ship can fire at, although increasing in firepower on the single target. You could have the turrets have an auto shoot back ability to just automatically shoot back at ships that shoot at you. Balancing that skill would be fun for the devs to make it good enough to be better than nothing yet not so good that actively discourages teaming up actual players. Also, there's the risk of accidentally triggering too much aggro. While trying to shoot back at one ship attacking you, your turret shoots several others by accident. Whoops. It's the dilemma in MMORPGs, when a player had pets that if not under control could aggro, trigger an aggressive response, in too many foes at once. He also notes remote systems breaking or getting hijacked. As for having Star Citizen wade out into the technical weeds, should they? Personally, I'm more of a visual guy, is his response. I don't need all the technical jargon. If I never hear the word submation, it'll be too soon. I prefer a summary. I loved the videos showing the various kinds of walking animations and, quote, Lego brick elements to buildings. However, having the post there for others to do the research and summarize builds trust. And finally, in general feedback, speaking of the brief visuals that summarize a lot of data, here's a nice infographic on Star Citizen. And he puts a link in the, in the notes. Well, that's my posting for the week. Was it long and detailed enough for you, Henry? Or Ken Shadow? 
If not, or if so, send me a post at squawk at kenfromchicago.com. Sorry, just kidding. It felt good to be verbose and not squeezing a message only in a few tweets. Thanks for the nudge, Henry. Ken from Chicago. P.S. Still not buying the party line about female skeleton animation delaying female player characters. That may be true in real life, but it's not only a game, but an alpha of the game. Just put on the female texture. Once you've perfected the female animation, then iterate the female characters into that skeletal animated structure. In the rest of the general feedback, Mark Hayes commented on YouTube, where you will now be able to listen to the show. It's a pretty good show. I always check it out. Great show as always, guys. Thumbs up. Brian Murray writes, Great show, everyone. Somebody poked a bear. How so? <laughs> Just... Just uh, Ken from Chicago's uh, feedback. Feedback, yeah. I thought his feedback was great, actually. I, I All did of it was too. good feedback. I, I did, I did like him uh, personally attacking me. That was fun. He gave me something to do, and I did read the hell out of that sentence, I will say. Preparing for the show, I read that sentence ten times to make sure I could just rattle it off. <laughs> so good job, Ken. And this week's community questions. For Star Citizen, what do you think of the Javelin? Did that avatar, in fact, have the Mark Hamill-based facial features? And in Elite Dangerous, so what do you think is the reason for all the bugs? Are you enjoying the new features that do work? Drop us an email, a tweet, or comment on our show post, which you'll find on our website and over on our Facebook page. So, how was the show? Was each area distinct and separate with its own art style, or could we really do with labeling each area? Either way, let us know. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Why not leave us a comment on this show's post over at GuardFrequency.com? Or hit us up on Twitter at GuardFreak, or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash GuardFreak. You can also use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of what we do, so take a minute and tell us what's on your mind. And that brings us to the end of episode 164 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 165 on April 25th. So be sure to keep an eye out for our shows over at GuardFrequency.com. But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at feeds.guardfrequency.com or by searching for us on iTunes. And if you're not doing anything Friday nights, then you should come join us at 10 p.m. Central as we record Guard Frequency Live over at GuardFrequency.com forward slash live. Do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. And you can also support the show by visiting our website, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber. For just $1.25 a week, you get access to the raw recordings of our live shows, some Guard Frequency goodies, and an invitation to our private Elite Dangerous flight group. We want to thank all our Patreons who support us with their subscriptions week on week, and hope that you'll consider making a regular contribution, because the more support we get, the better show we can make. As a special treat this week, our Patreon supporters are getting the live, uncut, raw interview with Doug Drexler. Are you looking for a friendly wingman or two? We're active in most space sims and would love to have you join us. Check out our website and look under the call signs section for details of how you can fly with us. And don't forget about our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek from the TV series to the MMO, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. Be sure to check them out at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Thanks to our community manager, Justin Schiller, being Lowmaster, our artist, Ben Sanders, and Simon Charlton Edwards, our staff writer, Jace Pentad, and of course, our audio engineer, Mikey. 
Thanks to our syndication partner, The Bass, and a special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit RonaldJenkins.com for more of his work. But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty lonely. Authenticate identity with recognition codes immediately. I am a cipher, a cipher wrapped in an enigma, smothered in secret sauce. All right, sits and sibs, captains and commanders, got a big treat for all you sci-fi fans out there in the deep black. We have with us Academy and Emmy Award winning and practical jokester prankster, Doug Drexler. I don't mean to be that way. (laughs) But if you're a fan of Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, or just movies in general, you've seen his work on the screen and you've loved it. He started off as a makeup artist where he won his Oscar for his work on, and then he moved over to his first fictional love, Star Trek. Working on the yes. TNG set, first in makeup, then in scenic art, and eventually into sketching and drawing and CGI and VFX and just about everything else. I just made a pig of myself. That's true. You know, well, welcome most to the show, Mr. Drexler. have one career and they feel happy. <laughs> you're, you're not, you're I, never I couldn't settle for one career. There's just too many fun ones. Well, let's talk, let's talk about how you got into having this sort of fun. Now, we if uh, fans listen to our other episode, our other show, Priority One, they know you got started off. Kind of, kind of as a fan, kind of as a fan of just sci-fi and stuff. How did, how, how did you get started? In the yeah, well, I mean, I was reading science fiction uh, as a little kid. I mean, you start with comic books, uh, but uh, pretty early on, I was reading all the, you know, I, I was reading Isaac Asimov and, you know, uh, all, all, all the classics, H.G. Wells. And I mean, I loved Edgar Rice Burroughs. I think I re- read every John Carter of Mars book twice. And I think it was my father got me really started. I was homesick from school, and he brought me a paperback. And he said, I, I read these as a kid. I like these. Why don't you take And I got hooked on John Carter. <laughs> I mentioned that to him a couple of weeks ago. He was like, I never read John Carter. <laughs> <laughs> Distancing himself. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I still have almost, I still have, I mean, all these books back here. Yeah. Just some of my books. I, ha- I have all my books from it when I was a kid. On the shelf for all your early sources of inspiration man too tom swift uh-huh okay yeah so the, when you have all these you're surrounded by this inspiration what, did you, what was your first entree into like when did you first realize hey i can do something well i you know i guess it's when i read the making of star trek you found you out know. that people actually made a living just creating yeah, stuff it, i was i mean how old was i 12 years old 12 year olds when i was 12 years old we're not as worldly as 12 year olds are today. You can go on the internet and see all about it, how movies are made and there's so much stuff. But when I was a kid, there was very little. It was either whatever you saw in books or magazines, you know. So <laughs> at 12 years old, I still thought they shot the show in order. Oh, you know? Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, Everybody... the way it's in the script. Yeah. It was like an epiphany to me to find out that, you know, all the transporter room shots were shot on the same day. Right, right, you right. Know? Yeah. Uh, but I was. Like I said, I was 12 years old. I got the making of Star Trek, and I read that. And I'm reading uh, production schedules and production memos and, and learning about who's who's who behind the scenes. Bob Justman, who was the pro- a producer on the show, was a hero of mine. Of course, Roddenberry was a hero, but Bob Justman, uh, if you read the making of Star Trek, his memos are, are so endearing, and they're just plain hilarious. So, uh, And... Uh, and I was lucky enough to work with all of them, uh, and Bob in particular, who became almost like an uncle mm-hmm. to us. You know, we were we were uh, friends 
Right. But uh, but it was the yeah it was the making of Star Trek. There's no doubt about it that that, that ignited something for me. And plus, um, uh, while Star Trek was still on the air, uh, there was a company called Star Trek Enterprises, which became Lincoln Enterprises, and which was Majel Barrett, mm-hmm. well, Roddenberry's wife. And what Majel was doing was, uh, well, she had a flyer that she sent out, and it had film clips, and it had. Uh, scripts that you could buy and it was unheard of mm-hmm. I mean 1967 there was just no place you could get that stuff maybe if you lived in Hollywood and you go to Hollywood Boulevard and go to Book Castle might be able to find it. but but it was just unheard of so oh and the funny thing about it is that Majel when they printed up scripts for an episode Majel would just say tell the print shop to you know print 25 extras and, and she'd, she'd keep them, them. <laughs> and she sell them yeah. plus she used to go to the, into editorial and scoop up all the film, the you know the, the clippings, the, the clippings off their cutting. <laughs> literally the literally, stuff that's on the cutting room floor. Literally the stuff that was on the cutting room floor, <laughs> and then bring it home and snip it up and sell it as slide packets. Well, she had she had, had I think B. Joe Trimble uh-huh. and John Trimble were working for the Roddenberrys at the time, and they were doing that for her, cutting the things up and putting them in envelopes. And I, as a kid, was mailing away. Can you imagine? You send it, you know, and it's going to take two weeks for them to get it and send it. And then it's going to be another couple of weeks. And every day after school, I would run to the mailbox to, mail to see if it was in there, you know. <laughs> but that but that was a part of my education uh-huh. um, of how Hollywood worked was uh, buying scripts, which I didn't have. I, I mean, I think a, I think the expensive script was the two part menagerie. Right. And I had to like save up for that. I think it was like $15. It was like $150, you know. Wow. <laughs> but but the thing was that um, I learned about the business from looking at the scripts, seeing the camera direction. Um, once uh, I, I ordered a script the v- very next day after the Enterprise incident uh, aired. The oh, first right. Time. Uh-huh. And I guess they, the script I got back had Roddenberry's name in the corner. And there were like pages that had markings and stuff on them. And wow. Like, Majel must have just picked up Gene's script and thrown it in an envelope for me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but the thing was that, I'm now film clips. Yeah. Uh, I, I still have, you know, uh, loose leaf binders full of film clips from the original series that Majel cut up. Uh, and we used those when we were doing trials and tribulations and all, because when we did trials and tribulations on DS9, you couldn't just go on the internet and type in USS Enterprise Bridge and get 10 billion hits. Right, right. Whatever you yeah. saving since you were a kid. No, you know, I, I had boxes of stuff I'd been saving since the show aired. Yeah. And that's how we did it. You know, I mean, we had VHS tapes. We did have that. Right. When you, uh, by the time you did DS9, but let, so that's, that's your, that's when you're a kid. So let's talk about you when you're like in your early twenties, you're first starting out. So you, you had this childhood full of immersing yourself in these Hollywood details, and you got you got an idea for the business. What was your first sort of break? Where did you actually start make it start making it as a quote Hollywood guy? You know, <laughs> you're a Hollywood well, guy, Doug. Don't don't. I guess I am. I've been told that. And yeah. I've actually been told that by people who were mad. <laughs> 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 that, you know, especially with the the you know uh, the last year, uh, people go crazy sometimes when celebrities make political statements oh, right, and if yeah. you just happen to work in Hollywood you're going to take crap for it Hollywood guy. <laughs> from your friends sure. on Facebook who live in you know Milwaukee or something like that yeah uh, wow. you know that uh, uh, 
they they love the they love to watch the movies and they love the shows and stuff like that. But you're a degenerate Hollywood, you know, freak. <laughs> no, my own father. Well, that's why he's not taking credit for the John Carter thing, man. That's why he's walking back the John yeah. Carter thing. It could be. Yeah, it could be. He may have is. gotten some threats. You know yeah, how things yeah, are. That could be. So you're a young yeah. guy. You, you grew up. You grew up with this this film. Well. Thing. And so what is your first one? I have to say that as far as Star Trek goes, it was before uh, Hollywood was, we opened a store in New York called the Federation Trading Book, mm-hmm. which was a Star Trek shop. And it was like 1976. And there was no Star Trek. There were no movies. There was no anything. And it was a big hit. And because of that, I got to, you know, we did magazines like the Star Trek poster book and, and you know, supplied stuff to uh, shows in New York. Like if they were doing an interview with DeForest Kelly, we'd bring props over. And oh, okay, so, yeah. Like t- Saturday Night Live when they did their John Belushi. Oh yeah, you guys all their that? uniform. On. <laughs> they, oh, that's they got hilarious. all our from us. Mad <laughs> Magazine when they did their satires would come to the store. You know, that was my first taste of uh, sort of on the periphery. You know, uh, like going to a show to b- loan some props and see what it looks like and go, oh my God, I belong here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when I lived in Manhattan as a kid. I would see movies being shot on the street. Uh, I, I mean, I remember I was walking uh, West on 10th Street one night, and they were shooting a movie, and it was Taxi Driver. And oh. it was De Niro in Checker yeah. Cab. I didn't know who De Niro was at the time, but I, I stayed and watched it, and I was always so impressed by the film crews. They were so, it was like a, a small army. They were so organized. They were right on top of everything. No one had to ask twice for anything. It was really impressive, I, you know, and I felt like I belonged on the other side of the barricade. I, I wasn't in the business yet. I was working at an architectural supply on the telephone sales desk and um, they had a Halloween party. I got uh-huh. invited to a Halloween and I had been saving articles on makeup. I was saving articles on all kinds of, of effects stuff. Right, because there was and no I, internet. Yeah, I had to say clippings and articles, which I still have all of them. And um, I had it, it was it was an old fan zine that eventually became an actual magazine, uh, Cinemagic. I think it was Cinemagic, not Cinefx. They, they act, I think Starlog put out Cinemagic for a while as a magazine. Well, anyway, so I had these articles on, on how to run foam latex and make molds and, you know, how, how to do a Planet of the Apes makeup. Uh-huh. I that. I should give this a shot. I've been wanting to do it. And being in New York City, almost everything you want is right there. You mm-hmm. know, I could go get foamy techs. I could go get the gypsum and the plaster and all the stuff. And I found out that, you know, I had never sculpted before. I was always a sketcher, mm-hmm. you know, and it just so happened that I, you know, I made the molds. I did the life cast of the person I was going to do the makeup on, made the molds and sculpted the ape makeup on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'd never sculpted before. And I was like, wow, I actually kind of have a flair for it mm-hmm. without ever having. And that was it. I, w- I was totally hooked. And I did the makeup, uh, did the makeup on Donna. I had a costume for it as well and, and uh, had a wig and the whole thing. And it was mind blowing. I mean, it was like I had created this other l- life form. Uh-huh. It, cool. it, it does blow your mind when you do it. Uh, I think the great Dick Smith, I don't know if you ever heard of Dick. Uh, Dick is the greatest character makeup who ever lived. Uh, and he did The Exorcist and Little Big Man and Amadeus and, mm-hmm. you know, really incredible 
character makeup. He did monsters and things as well, but he was mostly known for stunning. You've seen The Exorcist, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. you've seen the Linda Blair makeup, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. That's not even the makeup in the movie. What? The, what? When I saw The Exorcist scared the hell out of me, right? Sure, yeah, it's a scary movie. Oh, anytime I heard that theme, I, you're yeah. coming through the wall. From, <laughs> uh, but um, about four years after The Exorcist, I saw Max von Sydow, who played Father Marin, right. the old priest. Mm -hmm. I saw him in another movie four years later. He was young. He was in his 40s. And I was like, what? That's what? <laughs> and, and, Wait, you don't look you like know, that. Yeah. He's 80-something years old. <laughs> and I found out that Dick Smith, this guy Dick Smith, did that makeup. And I had been totally fooled. You know, it's one right. thing to do a monster makeup. I mean, how many monsters do you ever see in person? Right. Not too many, you know? Mm -hmm. But old people you see all the time. And if you're fooled by that, that's really pure magic. Well, now, see, that, you had a chance to do that yourself because uh, didn't didn't you do on Star Trek, didn't you do uh, uh, old Captain Picard? Uh, well, I, I didn't design that makeup. And, okay. Uh, it was designed by Mike Westmore. I put it on for him. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. It's, it was your hand. It's his work. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, well, I mean, I was a makeup artist for about 14 years, mm -hmm. and I had a partner named John Caglione, and we did all kinds of character makeups, old age makeups, creature makeups. Uh, we're probably best known for Dick Tracy. Yeah. Did all so the your faces, yeah. Tracy. And um, so that was your in. That's how you got in with your with your with your that was makeup. The funny thing was, is I a friend of mine named Doug Murray who wrote articles for film commentary magazines. I showed him what I been doing and he said I just interviewed Dick Smith I'm going to give you his telephone number I think you should call him I still see Doug to this day it's yeah. been like 35 years um, and, and he gave me the number and it turned out Dick Smith lived in Larchmont which was only 15 miles north of New York City holy cow sure. so I have it, it took I had been studying Dick Smith for like a year before Doug Murray gave me his telephone number and I had you know the when I worked at the uh, the architectural supply at, on the phone desk, I had pictures from books of all of him doing makeups in his lab. I would study while I was taking orders, you know. Mm -hmm. And after, so anyway, about two weeks later, I, I built up the courage and I called Dick Smith on the phone. And he kept me on the phone, giving me information. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Now, he was legendary. That. He sure. was really there. There were a lot of people, I don't know about now, but then. There were a lot of guys like Carlo Rambaldi, you know, who did the giant King Kong, which was horrible. Uh, but 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 he did E.T., things like right. that. Uh -huh. I, we ran into him in North Carolina, the North Carolina Film Studio, and he came to our where our, we set up our lab there. And he said, listen, there's a couple of Italian kids. Now, Carlo's from Italy. A couple of Italian kids came to visit him. He says, if they come visit you, he says, we have to protect our industry. You know, you really shouldn't give them anything. Oh. Let them find it out for themselves. Don't give them addresses. Don't. And we came from Dick Smith. And the Dick Smith school is you give everything away. Now, of course, <laughs> Carlo may have been right in a certain respect because because of Dick Smith, there are a huge number of people. Mm -hmm. When I was starting out, there weren't that many. Right, right. So now it's you could do a TV show every week. You kind of hey. do. Hey, yeah. That's kinda... Multiple, actually. One episode. Uh, a judge on so, all right. So you got in what you got in, and you, uh, you the, that's that's how you bridge the gap. You got into Star Trek as the makeup guy. I wrote Dick. Mm -hmm. I started sending him pictures of my stuff. I did an old age makeup. He really was impressed with, and uh, uh, and uh, 
one day, it was about three months later, he says, um, <laughs> I was mixing a bowl of plaster, making a mold, and the phone rang, and it was Dick. And he said, I'm starting a movie. It's probably a couple of months of work, you know, and uh, can, are you available? And I, you know, and uh, of course, after I got off the phone, I was jumping up and down like I was yeah. my first job in the business, you know, so I was going crazy. I ended up being there six months. Uh, and uh, uh, and it was like a college of prosthetic knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, The Hunger. It was a David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve. Oh, yeah. The first of new wave vampire flicks. You know, mm -hmm. that was Tony Scott. You know, the Scott brothers tend to start trends. And that was the first time I'd ever seen a vampire movie, anything like that, remotely like that. And in it, there was uh, Dick did like four or five stages of old age for David Bowie, who like ages within about an hour or two, sitting in the doctor's office. Uh, our crumbling mummies, uh, our full body mummy suits, uh, what we used to call change-o heads, you know, all that change-o head stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like CG has really, you know, put a crimp in what ma where makeup was headed. Right. Uh, I mean, who who's gonna make a big, uh, you know, monster like uh, uh, in, like Rob Bottin did in The Thing, and, and deal with it on stage and be squirting KY jelly all over everyone, <laughs> you know? And uh, instead they could just shoot a green screen now and they could put it- Make anything they it. want, they make anything and, they want. And it'll be more impressive. You, you know, the interesting thing is that I run into a lot of people where uh, to them like CG is like Satan, you right. know? It's like this wonderful, you know? Uh, and it's usually people who were making the change o heads or making physical models they feel like they've been displaced i understand that completely but you know i did all the other stuff the hard way too mm -hmm. you have to you can't expect things not to move ahead you have to get excited about the new thing some guys do and some guys just don't they don't want to they're not interested well yeah because you uh, when, when you went to star trek you went start you were kind of at the top of the makeup game right you were like you, you you just won your big award and you went over to star trek and they had the alien of the week and everybody had foreheads and weird arms and spots and borgs and all that kind of stuff and then you you said ah, let me try something new. i'll do something different <laughs> pretty much yeah i'm pretty like much, uh, I'm you pretty know awesome with this but I, let me i'll do something different well you know it's just that there was there's so, <laughs> so many cool things going on right do I really want to do makeup for 40 years when I could do all these other things too and have done makeup? You know, so it's like, uh, <laughs> I I went over, I got to know Mike Westmore mm -hmm. and we hit it off. I mean, we're still pals and, and we still get together regularly. He's a very funny guy. I, of course, just knowing a Westmore for me is a big thrill because mm -hmm. if you know much about Hollywood makeup, you know that the Westmores literally invented Hollywood makeup. Of course, there's Lon Chaney, but the, but the Westmores at one point, there was a Westmore who was the head of makeup at every major studio in Hollywood. I mean, the Westmore brothers, you know, those are all Mike's uh, uncles. Oh, okay. It was Purse Westmore, Frank Westmore, Marvin Westmore, Bud Westmore. I mean, you know, you can't watch an old movie without seeing a Westmore. So to, and, and some of the Westmores were holy terrors. Purse Westmore at Warner Brothers was known for having a bad temper. Mm -hmm. If you pronounced his name wrong, you get fired. It was P E R C. If you called him Perk, you were <laughs> you're done. You're done. It's, 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 That's okay. true. I'm not I've, kidding. Uh, wow. uh, so to meet Mike, and 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 he was such a wonderful, warm-hearted, funny, funny guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then to be able to work, and I 
pretty much begged him to let me go next generation. He was like, well, but you're doing features and stuff. Are you sure? You know, and I'm like, oh man, no, you, you don't understand Star Trek. This is, this is it. Hmm? This is what started everything for me. I, this is where I want to be. Plus the other thing is that this Star Trek all the way up to Enterprise, I consider those to be, they're all spun off of Gene Roddenberry. Mm-hmm. Roddenberry got it started in Next Generation. Everything right. after Enterprise has been somebody trying to reinvent the show right. and put their own spin on it, you know, because everyone has to show how smart. Uh, but sure. so I started working uh, on TNG, doing makeup, and I spent, I mean, the hours were god awful on the show. <laughs> so it's really, it's really I believe it. Work. Yeah. I mean, you could be there till 2 a.m., you know, and have to come back in six hours. Uh, but, um, um, I spent a lot of time on the Enterprise, on the Enterprise D. I mean, I lived on, on that set. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. I mean, I was on every one of those ships afterwards, but as a makeup artist, you're like sacking out on this bio beds in sick bay, you know, mm. to get some sleep. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, if somebody's forehead falls off, you gotta be, you gotta be right there. Oh, you gotta be right there. Yeah. You have to be right there. Uh, you know, the other funny thing was that because we came from the East coast and you know, I, we're a little different, I guess. All I know is that I just came off of Dick Tracy. I'm on stage and there's a makeup in front of the camera and some of the makeup artists are off having coffee. And to me, that's like unbelievable. I mean, it's like you should be right next to your actor, even if they're just an indie extra. Mm-hmm. You know, if they have to call for you, you don't want to be over have, eating a donut. That doesn't look very good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But the, but if I had a character, I would stand right behind the camera and I would ask Marvin Rush to look through the lens. And I was like, <gasps> <laughs> it's there. It's, it works. You know, I mean, yeah. look. I'm, maybe I can. It was easier for me to get away with it because I have to admit, you know, I've been, I've been so fortunate. I came onto Star Trek as a mini celebrity in a way, right? Because I come off of one of the biggest shows in Hollywood at the time. I mean, mm. that's all anyone was talking about was Dick Tracy. Every actor in Hollywood, every big shot actor was in that movie, right? And it's Warren Beatty, and you know, mm. um, so when I came in, it, I could be a little. Uh, it was okay for me to act like a fan, right? You know, right? I could, I could, uh, you know, be enthusiastic about the show, where I think a lot of people, like maybe Mike Okuda, would keep it on the down low because it was it was, a, it was a job. It was nine to five. You know, it was a, it was a serious well, business. Yeah, serious business. And, and plus, frankly, there were a few fans who, who you know, uh, uh, snuck on the lot after closing and ah. got on the sets. You could even find videotape on the internet a fan sneaking through the sets at night. And so the production uh, was cautious right. of fans. Mm-hmm. So it's like to have somebody coming in as a makeup artist who's known as a fan, you know, until they get to know you, it's better to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, talk less, smile more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Words to but, live uh, by. So, so yeah, so you're in, you, you, but you're in and you, and you're, you're the big shot makeup guy. And so you decide I'm going to do something different. And you go well, it's and- just, I, I spent so much time on those sets and I was a sketcher. I consider myself a designer and I love graphics and being on the Enterprise D all that time gave me a lot of time to really appreciate how beautiful those sets were. I mean, they just all the Starship sets from that era were really very well thought out. Mm-hmm. You go up to any panel and it wasn't bull****. You know, Real Michael stuff. Kuda was involved with a panel. That panel was going to be about whatever that panel was supposed to do. It wasn't just a lot of flashy lights. So... I, I was in love with the art department and I ran into Mike Okuda one day at the craft service table having a cup of coffee and I enthused about him and the work and stuff like that. I think I embarrassed him a little bit. But eventually 
what happened was I approached Mike. I remember, that, that, actually, this is where I learned that you don't blather that you're a big fan while you're on the show. Uh, I ran into Mike. I was, well, I was out in the corridor. There was nobody else there in the corridor by the transporter room. And there's that curve. And I'm walking along. And you can't tell who's going to come. And Mike, what could have come? And stop and we chat for a few minutes. <clears throat> We're standing by that turbo lift down there uh, uh, by the end of the hall by sick bay. And uh, I said, Mike, what, what are the chances of what if I wanted to be in the art department? I mean, is there any possibility? He says, well, that's really a tough one. But and he grabs me by the arm, drags me down the hall. Those big holodeck doors are closed, pulls them apart. They're really heavy. And inside that door is shuttle bay three, mm-hmm. which except for a ceiling is pretty much complete. Right. You open the door. It's a shuttle bay. And at the time, they were shooting an episode. Gee, I'm not sure which one it was. But but the thing was, there was one of the large-sized shuttlecraft in the hangar bay. Right. It was one that they had re, they had taken from Star Trek V and chopped it down and made a really beautiful full-size shuttle that had a big door that came down in the back. Okay, yeah. The door was down, and the shuttle was all lit, all the panels and everything. Like, it's waiting there for us. It's going to, to take off, yeah. Uh-huh. It's unbelievable. I go in, and it's like, he drags me in the shuttle, and he gets in the pilot seat, and I get in the co-pilot seat, and we're sitting, and you look through the windshield, and there's Enterprise D hangar bay, and all the panels are lit up, and and, and he says, I brought you in here because if we sound too you know, geeky about this, if someone hears us, isn't that kind of weird, though? Yeah, yeah. We're here working for the show, and we can't be too yeah. excited about working for we the show. So much of a fan. Yeah. Clandestine uh, fans. You might let somebody in to steal uniforms. Uh, like $10,000 worth of uniforms disappeared one weekend. Whoa. Yeah. Cap, uh, Picard's chair was stolen. What? But, oh, wow. But yeah. It oh, was out okay. in the alley. Man, it got lifted. Oh. Um, so uh, we're sitting in the pilot and co-pilot seat clandestinely mm-hmm. talking back and forth about this. And I said, Mike, you realize we're doing a scene from 2001 here right now. (laughs) 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 And we both roared at that, you know. I mean, uh, Mike and I are very of like mind and sense of humor and everything. We always had a great time together. But the thing was that um, I ended up, I almost started uh, on TNG uh, working for Mike. Uh, The person who was leaving, I got cold feet at the last minute. And so imagine that. Mike called and said, I'm sorry. And that was a bummer. But um, when DS9 happened, it was the opportunity for me to go to the art department. And uh, basically, you know, Mike went to Herman Zimmerman and Herman was like a makeup artist. <laughs> Are you crazy? Uh, and I think there was one computer in the art department at the time. And I never even seen Photoshop. I mean, all this was like brand new stuff. And Mike was showing me and I was flipping out just looking at it. It was so amazing. And, uh, and I went and I... I went out and I bought a Mac, I like that, and I st- was going to be starting in a couple of weeks. And all I did was Illustrator and Photoshop for two weeks, getting up to speed. Years and years later, Michael Kuda said, "I was so impressed by that that you ran out and got the computer." And I'm thinking, wouldn't anybody? But you know, there are a lot of people who, wouldn't, you know, yeah, wouldn't have done it, wouldn't have made that investment. So you're so you you get into DS9 and you're doing the art stuff now, and then uh, so from basically from DS9 all the way through Enterprise. You're in the visual art side. You're doing well, computer pieces and, and, and ships and, and graphics and VFX. Yeah, I mean, um, 
uh, it was all with Mike, scenic art, consoles, uh, um, uh, alien languages, dressing a set, going in with a caddy full of tape and just taping the walls up that look like there's panels. And mm-hmm. now that it's settled, they spent 30000 more dollars on it, you know. <laughs> I just had a wonderful time doing that and with Denise Okuda. Um, I did that and while I was on DS9 for seven years and got to know all of the effects guys. Mm-hmm. We worked, you know, very cooperative between the visual effects department and the art department. So uh, we always told them that they should consider us part of, you know, whatever they were doing if they needed any help, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there was Dan Curry and uh, Gary Hutzel and uh, Ronald, Ron Moore. Uh, and, uh, and other guys, McSuskin. Um, but but the thing was that if Gary was doing a show, and he ran out of budget, he knew he could come to the art department and say, "Hey guys, I need a Klingon space station." And we had a room where we just threw interesting junk, parts of model kits, and sewage strainers and stuff like that. And, right. and he'd have a stuff the next day with lights and everything, you know. So uh, we. We worked very much, you know, hand in glove, and uh, and Gary was a lot like us, and uh, and we laughed a lot with him. We had a great time with him, and uh, and, and actually, he's how I got into doing BSG. But the thing was that when DS9 was ending, I had, you know, I had done some work for Voyager. I'd done some cutaways and stuff like that. DS9 was ending. Voyager was going to go on. That show was staffed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm thinking, if there's going to be another show, it's going to be a couple of years probably after Voyager and I went to uh, at that point uh, Star Trek had just begun using CG for the ships they had been using models up mm-hmm. until towards the end of Deep Space Nine uh, and uh, the deal always was that Berman said we're, we're not throwing our stock footage away that we have with the ships mm-hmm. the day that you could cut your CG in with our stock footage and everything works then we'll start doing more CG and that was basically, uh, I guess, John Gross and, uh, and um, Ron Thornton at Foundation Imaging. And uh, uh, so, and they were using Lightwave, which was mm-hmm. the program at the time, the Star Trek's native visual effects program. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to go into Okuda's office. It was about a year and a half out from the end of the show. And I needed to t- find something to tide me over. Then I got, used to go in Mike's office and there was a box, Lightwave. 3D program. And while I'd be talking to Mike, I'd be looking at this box and the cool robots on the box and things blowing up and like that. And like, after, you know, after doing that for a while, a couple of weeks, just sitting there, I said, Mike, are you, um, are you ever gonna, he goes, no, I I don't want to climb the learning curve to it. I said, would you mind if I, and he go, no, go ahead, take it. So I took it home and I started using it and I started using it in the art department too. And I'm, and I remember right away, when I was learning to use it. When I first brought it home, I remember going to Dorothy and saying, this is it. This is this the box right here. Yeah. This is my lifeboat right here. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, remember this, what, you know, uh, and it, it really, it took off for me, you know. I was doing CG stuff in the art department. I remember one day Gary Hutzel came in. I, I didn't know he was standing behind me and I'm working in Lightwave and I feel this presence. I turn around and Gary's like standing there rubbing his chin, looking at it. <laughs> says, how would you like to make a ship for me? And I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and uh, I actually went over to Image G where they shot the stuff and Mike let me go and uh, worked on a ship with Gary 
and we really had fun because he's really fun. And um, I remember leaving and saying to Gary, gee, I hope we get a chance to do this again. This was really fun. And I remember vividly Gary said, be careful what you wish for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually... That's a hell of a segue, because let's fast forward. Let's, let's fast forward there. You, you have another one of these sort of dips in your career, right? Enterprise is wrapping up. You're, you're wrapping up Enterprise. It kind of it got cut short maybe early. I think it died before its time. I think it died before its time. Season four was amazing. It wasn't ratings. The show did pretty good ratings. Yeah. The, it, it, season four was some of the best Trek ever filmed. I mean, I really, I really think so. I think it died yeah, before its time. It was political. It was a lot of yeah. politics going on. You know, Rick Berman and uh, uh, Les Moonves didn't like each other yeah well uh, but look if if enterprise hadn't gone down yeah because would have went to Battlestar galactica probably because that's because that's what happened right? i mean you 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 get you get you get the notice hey we're not bringing it back for another season and you're like they didn't well, give well, us well. any notice at yeah. all we found that on the internet what oh my god <laughs> yeah. oh my it god it was on the internet actually i'll tell you the truth we knew about a week or so before that we were in trouble because uh back lot operations came in with a couple of people and were measuring the room <laughs> oh no oh, that's awful that's the worst you know, slip ever. <laughs> oh that's so, like that's like so walks into your office and goes these drapes are coming out we're like i like them no they are coming out you're done you're, you're done <laughs> well, there was a segue to bsg but i should say that when what happened was that when ds9 ended it turned out that uh, ron thornton was an old friend of dorothy uh, my wife that they had worked together years and years before. And um, uh, she called him up, and Ron says, yeah, come up to Foundation. Uh, you know, uh, let's meet. And I went up there, and they, like, hired me on the spot. And I was I was okay in a lightweight, but I was a neophyte. I was yeah, still a still junior. Good. And um, uh, But it was a great place to go. I mean, Ron was one of the coolest guys. You know, he I don't know if you know about Ron Thornton. He's gone now. Uh, he, he was a pioneer in visual effects, especially in television for CG. Mm-hmm. He, uh, you know, Babylon 5 was the first fully CG show. Spaceships. Right. Okay. Ron. Okay, yeah. I was Ron. Uh, so I got my feet wet. I was at, at Foundation Imaging for two years. And then that's when they started Enterprise up. And, you know, I didn't want to go back. I was learning the CG stuff. I didn't want to go back and do graphics and scenic and stuff like that again. Mm-hmm. I did that already, and this is cool and exciting. And um, uh, so they had started up in the very, very beginning without me. Michael Kuda was there. Uh, John Eves was there. And uh, John was doing designs for the ship. I think he did like at least 30 designs for the ship. Mm-hmm. And they were all, no, 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 for whatever reason. Who knows? You know, usually they'll run you around in a circle until there's almost no more time. You know, And then they, they pick the first one. And that's often <laughs> the way it is. Uh, you know, it was time for Herman and John to move on to the interiors. And uh, Mike, thank thank God for Mike. Uh, Mike said to Herman, "Say, Herman, Doug is up at Foundation Imaging with all this computer stuff. What if he brought all that, everything he's learned back to the art department, and you could design the ship in the art department in 3D, Ooh, and yeah. you could go to a meeting, put a VHS tape in a player, and show them the ship flying by the camera? You know, the thing." You know, that's like candy to a right. producer. Yeah. And Herman looks really great, too. But the other thing is that if you have a flashy enough illustrator, that person can make a crummy design look great. You know right. what I mean? Right. Because they draw it in a flashy way. It may not look half as good in all the other views. 
you're really taking a chance, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a guy like John Eves, who can also build models, often will do a design and then build an actual physical little model to take a look at it. And they did that with the Enterprise D as well, you know. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that, like DS9, we didn't have for the station. You just, yeah, it was it was experience and instinct that told you that it would be okay mm-hmm. uh, as a physical model. Uh, in 3D, mm-hmm. but but now we were able to see the ship in any kind of light, any angle, any whatever. So that was huge for me. I got to design an Enterprise. Actually, yeah. I, d- I designed the A as well, um, and 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 spent the years on Enterprise using the computer to do illustrations. It was great. Frankly, I didn't like designing the ships because, um, and I I like designing ships. It was just that they would focus on the ships, uh, the producers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and they very nitpicky, and you might do it like you know a million times before they decide on something John was real good at that I didn't like doing that usually I would after that I take I probably only designed like seven ships mm-hmm. on Enterprise um, most of the stuff I was designing you know I would I would uh, do a, a CG version of an environment or a set and, and, I, I, and I frankly I just had more fun doing that so uh, so, uh, so anyway yes Enterprise gets cancelled I was on the show almost 17 years mm-hmm it's unheard of. That's a long career for one production. Unbelievable. Yeah. And the thing is that it, it becomes a big family, mm-hmm. you know. And after that many years, it really is family. So it's really crushing, you know, to divide everybody up. And I remember driving home the night we found out. And I'm thinking, boy, I'm never going to work again, you know. <laughs> That's That was it. I can't. Uh-huh. How yeah. could I? So uh, I got home. And Dorothy meets me at the door and says, Gary Hutzel left a message on the phone that very day. Wow. And I'm like, oh, my God. So he was reading the same Internet page as you were. I guess so. (laughs) He wasn't invited back for uh, Enterprise. I'm glad he wasn't. Uh, He ended up, uh, you know, hooking up with uh, Ron Moore, Mm -hmm. producer Ron, and doing Battlestar Galactica. And uh, I had watched the first season and it blew me away i was like wow i go i mean not only is everything else stupendous the sets the acting through the roof the stories you know the scope of it was just absolutely amazing um and and what blew me away was that gary had taken something uh that had getting kind of creaky actually spaceships Mm -hmm. flying through space from left to right and stuff like that you know right Uh, and made it a whole new thing actually what Gary yes. did was that he looked at Steve McNutt's cinematography, which was designed to look like uh, it was like a documentary almost. It mm-hmm. was a it was NL camera almost all the time, yeah. uh, and, and 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 translated and, that to space. And translated to space. You know, the difference was that on Star Trek, the camera was omnipotent. Right. The camera knew where it was going. The camera would. Uh, might start on a planet and then pan back and show the Enterprise coming up to it. Or uh, that Galactica was the exact opposite. Um, The camera never knew what it was going to be looking at. Star Trek, the camera always knew what it was going to be looking at, and it felt that way. On Battlestar Galactica, the camera was motivated by the action. It was like if you had a guy floating in space and there's stuff happening all around him and the camera is like moving and jumping and you're doing uh, snap zooms Mm -hmm. into things to get a better look at something and then something goes off and the camera whip pans over this way and you catch the, the battle star exploding, you know, right. It was, it was just, it, it, it was enthralling. Um, and I was so proud of him. Uh, and so when I got the message that 
he called me. I knew what it was. I knew it because he had been trying to get me, lure me away from from uh, uh, Enterprise mm-hmm. uh, when I was on that. I'm saying, Gary, I can't leave. I mean, this show could go for seven years. You know. Sure, sure. And you'd been there. You'd been there the whole time. You know, like you said it was family. Yeah, yeah. So, I had taken root. Yeah. So you get the phone call, and you you you, you already love the work. You already love the work. It's already great stuff. It's 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 new and interesting and 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 cool and innovative. And you're like, um, when do I start? Right. Well, it's like I called him up. I think he was in Vancouver when I I call him up, and uh, he says uh, he says I heard about Enterprise, and I said yeah yeah, and he says well you know, every cloud has a silver lining. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and uh, he said you know I'm pretty sure you. You know, I'll set you because they were using Zoic the first year or so, uh, which is a big, you know, uh, uh, VFX house. Uh, Gary wanted to start doing visual effects in house, like the art department. Up until then, what had happened was that you had had facilities that had sprung up, like Foundation Imaging or Eden Effects or Zoic. And what would happen was the thing I have to explain about Gary was that. And you can see, find a lot of pictures of Gary shooting physical miniatures on the internet, if you look. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary was a camera operator. He did, you know, he did motion control. He would, he would, they'd bring the ship in from the warehouse, set it up on a stick. He would light it. He would set up the camera. He would bring in the motion control guy. They'd work together. He was used to having 100% control. And now that visual effects was coming in, what was happening was that he was, the visual effects supervisor, but now he would go to the production meeting, listen to Berman and company talk about what they wanted. Then he would drive up to Foundation Imaging and have to sit down and explain to them what he wanted. And if he was really, really lucky, in about a week, he'd go back and it would be something like what he asked for. Now, they did a great job, don't get me wrong. But there are strong creative personalities who were working there who think, you know, they have a way they want to see it done. So they're going to push for that. And sometimes Gary would come in and what he wanted done, they hadn't quite done that. They they gave put us their own spin on it, which would be upsetting to Gary. You know, the Ford, the sword falls on Gary. You know, right. if they don't like it. Uh, and like I said, once again, Foundation did a stupendous job on the show. But it was just that Gary is the kind of guy who likes he likes to roll up his sleeves and get into the job himself. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, he was had been working with Zoic, and Zoic is always tremendous as well. You know, if anyone from Zoic is listening, Zoic does incredible work. <laughs> but but the but the thing was that um, uh, with Zoic, like most of these facilities that have you know like a hundred or so screens all operating, they're running it really like a you know an independent business. They've got an overhead and a nut that they have to mm-hmm. you know cover. Right. And so it's like it was one thing. It's one thing on a show like Star Trek where it says Enterprise fl- flies from left to right. You know, here and there you'd get a challenge. You know, we're at a crystalline entity or something like that. But on Galactica, uh, the shots were there were no stock shots on Galactica. I mean, the right. shots were all tailor made for every scene to tell a story. You know, they mo- the shots would actually move the story forward usually. Yes, it wasn't just moving from left to right. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's the, talk about the, it. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of the different uh, or the the work done on Battlestar Galactica, you guys won two Emmys for producing uh, some scenes: Exodus and He That Believeth in Me. Can you talk yeah. about those scenes? Those were story well, I mean, scenes. Those were, I mean, yeah. those were the show on on a couple of them. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that was the thing um, uh, on Galactica. 
uh, Ron Moore and David Icke, who are the producers, were, are, and I still work with David Icke, I'm working with David Icke on a show now. These are guys who you could have a, an idea. They wanted you to have an idea. If you had a good idea, they would, you know, for instance, um, when we did Razor, yeah. and there was a big attack on the Scorpion Fleet Yard, which was Oh, epic. yeah, that was epic, yeah. Epic! That was amazing. And, and, and Kyle, Kyle Toucher gets a lot of credit, and Sean Jackson for all the fireworks and stuff. But um, um, we got the script, and I remember Kyle and I are looking at it, and there's the Scorpion Shipyard, and in the script, it's like a pinpoint of light approaches the station, and then boom, a big, and the station is destroyed, and and uh, you know, they, they, they Pegasus manages to get away, you know, just in the nick of time before the explosion. We, we I just, I was, we both like looked at each other. We can't said, let get away with that. Holy shit! This is our <laughs> Pearl Harbor. Yes. This oh. isn't just a big explosion. Yeah. We got to do Pearl Harbor here. And so when Gary came in, we all got excited and jumping up and down in the scenes. And actually, half the stuff we we might have done didn't get done, and it was still more than a television set can yeah. <laughs> contain. Yeah. Uh, it really was absolutely. And so I remember that Kyle went and did um, previs for it. And he's like one of the best CG action guys out there. And it was kick-ass. And uh, we had Eric, the visual effects editor, who was down the hall, cut it together. And then uh, Ron Moore came in and Ron looked at it and he was like, yeah, <laughs> that was it. Okay, I just want to know. I've been on know. shows where you wouldn't dare do that. I just want to know. Shows. Yeah, I just want to know. Who had the idea of the Galactica falling out of the sky? I just, that was in the script. That was in the script? Okay, all right. That so the, the writers get credit for that one. Yeah, but yeah. that—that's. Uh, I those... mean, I think that the details of it, like launching Weiler falling and stuff, I think that yeah. was all us. Oh, uh, okay. that's good stuff too. That was that was a, it's a good line. Oh, that was a yeah. great scene. That yeah, was, yeah, I that mean, was, uh, yeah. Well, the, we've got yeah. an award, so yeah, it was a pretty good scene. It's it really is one well, of those iconic scenes. This show Probably a really challenging scene. A couple of times and didn't get it. You know, I mean, I think we had been nominated at least two, two times besides that, and it was like the first. The show had been nominated like first season, second season, and we didn't get it. I think Exodus was second it, season, wasn't it? Oh, was it might have been the, begin- might have been beginning oh, of third. The, you know, might have been beginning of the third. third. Might have been beginning of the third. But when we won the first one, we were in the middle of some big show, and <laughs> I said, "Come on, Gary, they're not going to give it to us. You know, we got work to do. We should stay here. I don't think we should go, honestly." And Gary said, all right. And we didn't go. Oh. And we won. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever let you live uh, that down? I, it's actually kind of hip and cool, to tell you the truth. Oh. Um, I have a, the fact that we didn't go and we won. You know, oh, it's like yeah, Marlon like... Brando winning and not going. <laughs> you know, it's like George, uh, George C. Scott winning Patton and not going and okay. donating the award to the Patton Museum. You know, it was like um, I still have a phone. One of the guys who was at the Emmy texted us. And I have a picture of the phone that says, dude, you won. <laughs> <laughs> and we won the year after that. We actually went the following year. Right. And I'll, and I'll never forget if you watch, if you ever see the footage. Oh, it was really funny because they, they, they did it a weird way. Um, they had all the teams that were nominated for visual effects stand up. Everybody stand up. And there's like four teams standing up. And, he sa- and they say, okay, would everyone please sit down except the team from Battlestar Galactica and we were like what <laughs> cool <laughs> Couldn't believe. yeah that was that was a terrific um well see that one was for the uh the, the battle in the nebula which is a fantastic looking 
I mean, that is an amazing, just an amazing looking scene, background and, and all and all the confusing ships. And yeah, that was. I really need to watch the whole series again. I mean, it was. I know. The thing I have to, you know, the thing about Galactica as opposed to Star Trek was that Galactica, part of Galactica's kit bag was, um, it was okay to experiment. On Star Trek, it's whatever it was on the page. Don't go changing. Right. What are you writing the script now? There's 40 you years know. of 40 years history here. Don't mess with it. Um, I, I think that they could have been a, a little looser, but I, I, you know, I I can't complain about Rick Berman. You know, he right. made Star Trek a big success. He, it was really Rick. Sure. You know. Um, but you could experiment. But then, yeah, th that was the beauty of Galactica. Is that, I mean, even in the editing room. Hey, look what happens when I put Act Three where act two used to be oh my god we never even thought of that and it makes a whole different story something that they never ever considered it was it was hell for us though because often once you start taking taking the carburetor and sticking it where the you know, <laughs> where the distributor cap needs to go wait a yeah. minute they got to hook these things like, in this way okay now now we ha now our shots don't mean the same things anymore sometimes we have to go back and do shots the closest we ever cut it was we gave them the final shots the morning of the day it was airing. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Hot off the presses there. Because they would uplink it via satellite to New York, I guess. Um, uh, you know, like at 11 o'clock or something. And we had to have the stuff to them no later than 6.30 in the morning or 5 in the morning or something. Uh. We finally got it down to pretty much a science where... Um, uh, you know, the last year was a piece of cake almost. You know, we were going home at normal time and <laughs> we had it all worked out. So one of the great things about Battlestar Galactica compared to other science fiction shows is how how real some of the um, the fight scenes looked. Uh, you know, there's no shields and there's are, you know, very little. And then the, the, the fighters moved in a way that felt a little more cohesive with a zero-G environment and things like that. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, the way the ships moved in that movie, or or how you guys approached uh, the spaceship design, et cetera, differently to make it give it that uh, that more realistic battle feel. Yeah, I mean that was the thing. I, I, that was mostly Gary, Gary Hutzel. Uh, he had just gotten done doing, you know, what he referred to as pixie dust technology. That uh, Galactica had less pixie dust. Mm -hmm. That yes, they would they would <laughs> do a jump, an FTL jump. That's that's kind of pixie dustish. But when it came to the Vipers and stuff like that, he says, I don't want them moving like airplanes. David Icke was very much against it as well. They're not airplanes, you know. You got it. There were times when we could get away with banking because it was just dynamic. If, if it worked dynamically, we would get away with it. But for the most part, the Raptors and the Vipers all had RCS thrusters on them. Mm -hmm. And the movement of the ship, you know, if I don't know how close you've looked, but you'll see the RCS is going oh, yeah. off. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Yep. You know, uh, so you had to use the RCSs to maneuver the ship, and so the ship would the ships would move differently. Now Galactica never, you know, Galactica always just kind of. Yeah, it was just a, it was just a lazy <laughs> sort of you know. Uh, then, yeah, a lot of mass. You know. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I love that. Um, uh, we had, we, had, so we had to say so this is radio, so he was just moving his hand very slowly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have to paint a word picture for the listeners. Yes, yeah, it was it was great here on the Skype channel. 
Yeah. He's a visual effects guy. And so it, and we're radio people. We're translating. Thank did, you. <laughs> did that affect any? Did it affect the ships in any other way? Obviously, you said the RCS thrusters and uh, you know the, the the physicality of the mass and movement. Were there any other features that you were like, oh, I want on this, and then Gary said, No, that's not realistic enough, or something like that? Well, you know, I mean, I, one thing I remember, and it's a phrase I use regularly to describe uh, something of the same. Um, there were times where you could get carried away uh, doing, you know, David Icke would send a back a shot and say, it's too precious, precious. And that means that you're too much in love with it. You're too much in love with the shot. You're too your much child, in love right? with, yeah, well, or, or making it move like a fighter plane. You know, you're getting a little, too, you're being blinded to the reality. Let's dial that back. Galactica is a woman with hair on her legs. <laughs> Star Trek is a woman who just came back from the beauty parlor. Yeah, you know, yeah. glamour shots. Yeah, she's got the fuzzy, soft yeah. focus and the diamonds in her hair thing. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. ship is always beautiful. You know, one of the things that we did was um, that they never they never did on Star Trek, uh, mostly because uh, a lot when they started, even on Enterprise, we didn't have it. Uh, Galactica wore all her battles. Yeah, on herself. Um, Every fight the ship ever had, we made sure that those marks were left on the ship. They don't come off. Yeah. So the ship was different all the way through. I mean, if you look at it from the beginning to the end, it is just a wreck by the time they get to Earth. It's interesting. Uh, you well, know, yeah, the, the last show, I mean, there's pieces falling off. They're flying oh, to yeah. Earth and there's bits flying off of the thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the yeah. thing was this. <laughs> on Voyager, I remember talking to Mike about uh, Voyager returns home flies over the San Francisco Bridge and I'm like geez Mike here's an opportunity to do the Blues Brothers you know <laughs> the ship holds itself together just long enough to get him to the Mayor Daly Plaza or whatever and then it springs apart like one of those toys you know yeah. you just have as a kid. <laughs> and, and that shows you that the old girl was you know just hanging on just long enough to Barely. get you home yeah and they didn't want to go for that. Oh, well. So years later, I'm on Galactica, and we've got this scene. And I told Gary about what we wanted to do with the Voyager. I said, I think that Galactica should just literally practically spring apart when it makes that last jump. And um, we came up with the idea that they had to jump with the flight pods out. And so what happens when you do that is when you reenter, I wanted to have... It was this, as if Galactica, you know, and in Back to the Future, where the ship, where, where the car, you know, there's the boom, 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 and the car is moving already, you know, right. as a flash happens and the car appears on the street and, right. and then, then he skids down the street. The idea is that Galactica jumps in almost like that at, and basically is still moving forward. It's like it hits a wall. I, I wanted to have the, that was my shot. I wanted to have the ship look like a car that hit a wall. Mm-hmm jump through the it made the FTL jump and then hit a brick wall on the other side and if you look at it you'll see that the flight pods lurch forward we've got vipers and shit flying out the fronts of the flight pods I mean it, it, it's just a, the whole finale of the show is really yeah. epic on the, the, on the Cylon uh, you know giant home base thing just amazing wow that was incredible, incredible that sounds like a show. decision that sounds like a decision that has to be made kind of up front is that was that all of that uh work done in 
<laughs> no, no, I, I meant on, on Battlestar Galactica because I think the the fact the ship broke up is is in the dialogue. So was that was that all something you had to work with the writers before the the shots were done, or or how how was how was your feedback put in there? In the script, if I remember correctly, it makes the jump and something goes wrong, and it actually in the script describes the ship twisting like a pretzel. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. Mm-hmm. And we actually had one of the guys do a shot where the ship takes the time to twist. I mean, you know, it yeah, looks ridiculous. Could... Yeah. <laughs> Whatever happens has to happen instantaneously. It's no, let's look at it twisting after, you know, for 10 seconds. It just, it was, it was ridiculous. But you know, the thing is that it's up to us to read the script and say, well, they're not really very visual guys. They're word guys, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. And I know what he means, but it's not twisting like a pretzel. He's totally wrong about that. Um, and so we just came up with this very dramatic, you know, uh, because we were free to do it the way we wanted to. Uh, uh, well, of course, we had to sell the idea. We do a previous. Oh, I see. You know, and let Ron and David Ike take a look at it. And, and nine times out of ten, they really liked it what we did yeah i can i can see where that would be uh, open to interpretation <laughs> oh yeah yeah uh it really evolved uh it, it was very dramatic it worked really great um incredible stuff you know i have to say that having come from star trek where they didn't want to spend any money on shuttlecraft you know we had that really nice one on uh the enterprise d that they mm-hmm. inherited and they chopped up but for the most part you know shuttlecrafts would get they'd have flat sides and you know yeah they were they were they were Weekend projects. I got up to Galactica and those Vipers. Oh my God! And the hangar deck and everything. the Vipers were absolutely, I mean, unbelievable compound curves and sophisticated lines and right down to inside the cockpit. Yeah. Well, uh, one of your there and it was, yeah. Let me go there because one of the things on your Facebook page is that you had to uh, digitize the Viper cockpit, right? Like all the switches and buttons and stuff. You had to take that out of the real world and put it into the into a computer world. So, yeah. I, mean, I mean, talk about that project. Well, the thing was that um, they were building, it may have been at the very beginning of the third season, they were building a, the, the Vipers had fully decked out cockpits, but they weren't wildable. You couldn't pull walls out. So you couldn't stick a camera in the seat, you know. Be, right. It, it, it just, it wasn't really designed to be filmed. It was mostly designed to, sh- to, you know, if you catch a glimpse of it, if an actor's in there and the ship is rocking around, uh, they, for the beginning of the second season, they uh, they put some money in the budget to build a cockpit that was outside of the Viper, where everything could come apart, all the walls and everything. And they put extra time into putting it together and designing it. It was really, really gorgeous. Uh, so uh, we wanted to make a CG version of it. Uh, it because well we just we knew we were going to need it we there were plenty of pov shots right from starbucks whatever where you see almost even though we had the wildable cockpit any shot that you see from the pilot's point of view looking at the console that's the cg one so we used it for almost everything yeah and and i i I got to build that that was so much fun to build um you know i just got to hand it to that galactica art department i mean and, and the guys, you know, uh, who built their props and stuff, they just did a stupendous job. Um, uh, you know, even the, the painters that they had were expert at doing carbon scoring and stuff on those planes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember. Burn marks and yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, uh, in, in Wrath of Khan, there was a fire on the bridge and there was like uh, scorch marks on the transporter, on, on the elevator door in, mm-hmm. in Wrath of Khan. And it looked fine in Wrath of Khan, but when they came back for the search for Spock, somebody else, the, the bridge had been repainted probably, when he had to go back in and scorch everything back up, someone else did it. And take a look at the scorch marks on the door. I don't. Want, I hope I'm not hurting someone's feelings. But they were really, <laughs> they didn't look organic, you know. And these guys who were doing the scorch marks and the hits on the Vipers, wow. I went in there one day and there was the guy doing it. You know, he had like two, uh, two chunks of wood that he got like, you know, uh, burnt umber and black paint and stuff and knock, click, knock the wood together and then use that to bash the, the plane with the actual chunks of wood with paint on it. And it was like, wow, I, mean, I just had to <laughs> rave to the guy. What a wonderful job. I mean, uh-huh. It was so convincing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, the Raptors, too. I mean, a Raptor is just beautiful. I mean, when you have stuff that's complete inside and out, that's the most mind-blowing thing, when you could go inside the Raptor and sit and feel like you could take off. Like the little tiny shuttlecraft with you and Mike Okuda. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Full circle. Let's let's just hope Hal doesn't see you. Hal always is watching. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, uh, you had had a lot of opportunity to work on... uh, changing Star Trek visually and you participated in the uh, Battlestar Galactica reboot which was darker and grittier than the original how do you feel that what you guys did contrasts with the way Star Trek was rebooted by Abrams and his team well I mean personally and a lot of people already know this is I do not like the J.J. Abrams Star Trek I, I think that's shared by a lot of fans yeah, um, but yeah. I'm interested in uh, what I mean is your feelings on your work to reboot a franchise versus what they did I feel like oh, you guys you didn't know, change things so much you mention that because uh, <laughs> it's possible I may be teaching a class at uh, a design center in Pasadena. I don't know yet. Uh, but I, I, there are two classes that I wrote up a syllabus for. And one of them is how to screw up a... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> how to screw up a reboot? <laughs> yeah, Fantastic. how to screw up aesthetically, screw up you know, a, a cultural icon. Uh-huh. You know? um, well, yeah, I mean, because... Things... You... Oh, go ahead, sorry. Go, ahead, go, go, go. Well, one of the things that I always love about Star Trek bridges and the technology and a lot of it has to do because of Mike Okuda, Sternbach and people who really you know understand that that kind of tech is important to the show and that Star Trek is very tied to the space program and we have a lot of space program fans watching and so we were always very very uh, it was very important to us that everything seemed like it had a purpose that really worked and that in your mind you could figure it out you could if you look at the Enterprise D or the NX consoles every backlit and every graphic was telling a story you could tell what state of condition the ship was in by the uh, the video playback that mike and denise put on the screens you know you yeah. could take temperature of the ship you knew that there was something going on by the freneticism of what of, you know if you look closer you could say well this is this is you know if it was a uh, you know a tactical station every button was set up for that and it was all clear and clean and you could actually sit down and figure it out you could see what everything oh yeah look this shows how many torpedoes we have left and this is you know when i saw the jj abrams bridge i could not make head nor tail of what was going on it was there every, is a captain's chair <laughs> it's like every freaking color you know i mean mike mike from the very beginning was like we have limited color palettes for all of the different races you know uh st- the starfleet uh uh readouts are probably only f- four colors 
that you could double up on to get more saturated looks. Klingons were always like reds and yellows and stuff like that. Romulans were blues and greens. So the minute you were on the bridge, you knew where you were just from the colors. When you use every color in the rainbow, honestly, you just get mud and it doesn't tell you anything. We always had a test in the art department, the squint test. A lot of artists do it. I did it when I did makeup. And that is when, when you do it, you look at it, step back, look at it, blur your eyes, squint your eyes. And if what you're trying to get across isn't coming across, then it's a failure. There, because most of, the, most of the tech and the readouts and the graphics are gonna be seen blurry behind an actor talking. So you have to design it so it still is convincingly portraying information even though it's in the background and blurry. That was always very important on Michael Kuda's uh, uh, scenic art. I, you know, I'd, I'll tell you the truth. If you gave that bridge to me and Okuda and let us revamp, we'll keep the same bridge, but just revamp all those graphics, you would have a totally different ship that would intrigue people. They would look at the consoles and go, wow, what's happening back there? You know, the thing about Mike's stuff on Star Trek was that it was always very, very, it, it, it had an overdeveloped sense of organization to it, you know? It wasn't just a lot of cool stuff all thrown together that when you squint your eyes and you look at it, it just turns to spaghetti. Literally, Mike, like levers and stuff coming out of the communications panel. Why does Uhura need a lever? Uh, is, yeah. that's, it's just nuts. What ha that's what happens. Listen, I don't want to criticize anybody, but there are a lot of people who think that they're science fiction fans who are doing science fiction, and they're not science fiction fans. They're action-adventure people. Yeah. That they don't stand it what it is that makes Star Trek tech so, after 50 years, still intriguing. And now people say, wow, Star Trek invented that, you know, like pads. And the thing was that on most of the shows until J.J. Abrams, I'm gonna get in trouble for that. <laughs> uh, on, most of, on most of those shows, that stuff has no, does not intrigue them right down to the DNA. Mike Okuda is a designer who, that's, that, it's his DNA. He's not, you know, he didn't just come from doing Mission Impossible and now he's going to go do, uh, you know, on Golden Pond. You know what I mean? Mike is always, everything Mike does, even when he's not on Star Trek, has to do with space, space exploration, JPL. He's so into it. He lives it and sleeps it and dreams it and eats it. I have a feel for it too and I love it myself. And I understand the idea that Matt Jeffries, who was a production designer on the original series, was uh, an aviator. He was a... Um, uh, he worked for the Smithsonian Library of Congress, uh, you know, uh, for the Air and Space Museum. He was a flight engineer on a B-17 during World War II. He designed everything to look like it made sense. That was always very important to him, not just because it's cool looking. It's the difference between Star Trek and Lost in Space, Yep. you know? Um, somebody could go to work. This is somebody's job. Someone sits at this desk and punches these buttons to make things work. But, you know, Erwin Allen was more like, you know, uh, oh, that that looks wacky or cool or crazy. They, they do it just because it looks wild or interesting or flashy or, you know, like the Apple Store or, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, the Apple Store. Uh -huh. You know, uh, you've got to really love this stuff to know what looks uh, convincing, like a faux technology. Uh, we really had with very little money. We really had that cornered. And with and they have lots of money and I think that they failed hugely. I mean, what kind of person would think it would be okay to use a brewery for engineering? Only oh. only people who think that it doesn't mean right. This is all make-believe, it doesn't matter. 
And then, and they've totally missed the number of gearheads and people who love Star Trek technology because it hangs together. You know, uh, our shows had fans at JPL, and I was there when Stephen Hawking came in and sat in the captain's chair. You know, they can tell that there's a real respect going on there yeah. for that tech. Of course, the other thing is that up until J.J. Abrams, continuity meant something, <laughs> which is really ridiculous that they would, you know, it's really very lazy on their part. They could decide that continuity doesn't mean anything anymore. Now we can do anything we want. And they feel like it's easy. Rick Berman often said that Star Trek was difficult because we had things like the encyclopedia, yeah. that we had to stay within certain guidelines. But that's part of what makes it so beloved. People love learning it, taking it apart, reading about it, finding out that there's more real tech there than mm -hmm. they thought. Um, well, and people uh, also love and people also love the Battlestar reboot because it took all the old one and just threw it away. But they were clear about that. They were right up front. This is what we're going to do, and they love the new one too. But well, you have to be clear you know, about it. The, the, the thing was that if you are going to shake things up, you really you're it's a minefield. And I think that Galactica managed to navigate it properly and well. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure that there are people who are fans of the original. I can't stand the new one, you know. But, My father-in-law, but yeah. Uh, I'm a, I'm a very critical science fiction fan. And just speaking from my own place, my own opinion, when I first saw it was that it had that same kind of magic that Star Trek did, you know, that it was all taken care of, all, all very uh, carefully thought out and taken very seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, like flying the ships. Yeah. You know, Gary didn't want to do, uh, uh, he wanted it to, to be more bare-knuckled. Star Trek. I love Star Trek, but but I really did when he called it pixie dust technology. Uh, you know, he has it. I love pixie dust technology, but uh, and most shows follow that pixie dust formula, which I have to say that Star Trek really, you see it in all these movies. Ever since Star Trek in 1966, they've all imitated Star Trek. Yep. Uh, once we did Galactica, though, everybody they started, switched. A lot of them started imitating us. The first, the first Star Trek. J.J. Abrams totally ripped off Battlestar Galactica. And and I know this for a fact because David Icke, our producer, uh, was uh, at some function with J.J. Abrams and J.J. told him so. <laughs> that it, it doesn't, I, I don't like seeing that on Star Trek. I, you know, yeah. um, sure, it's exciting, but Star Trek is... I, I just don't think it's, it's tall ships. Style. Star Trek is tall ships. It's the majestic yeah. three sheets to the wind and the and the full yeah. sail and the yeah. It's majestic. Well, the the big difference between the original Battlestar and the reboot is that the original Battlestar was somewhat of a, a me too show. It was very obvious that it was it was cashing in on some of the popularity from from Star Wars. Whereas the reboot yeah. the reboot itself was was in many ways adding to the genre and doing something very unique. And I think that's why it was is much more respected in terms of a, uh, of a reboot. Have you ever tried to watch the original lately? <laughs> I, I yeah, tried to show it to my 14-year-old. I tried to show it to my 14-year-old. Wow. We, we made it through about 20 minutes. We made it through about 20 minutes. Uh, uh, it's very There's pulpy. a couple of good shows. There's a couple of good shows. I, th I seem to remember the one with uh, Lloyd Bridges being, uh, you know, with the Pegasus, Pegasus being a yeah. little better than average. But the show is almost unbearable and you know um you compare that to the original star trek which still tells a goddamn great story mm -hmm. very stylishly without embarrassing 
Oh, sure. There's, there's embarrassing. There's some you camp. Know, Spock's but, brain, you yeah, know. <laughs> I mean, there's, and there's some... Am I the only one that likes Spock's brain? I love yes. that episode. It's one of my um, favorites. I don't it, know. Well, the thing is that Spock's brain is a party show. You put that on when you want people to make fun of it. Yeah. You know, um, I, uh, I'll never forget seeing Spock's brain, uh, first run, and going into school the next day depressed. <laughs> that the show had jumped a shark. Uh, it was a third season yeah. show. Yeah. Well, third season did some really great shows. There were some. There were some real stinkers yeah. too. Uneven. The quality. next show I think was I think Enterprise Incident, which made me feel which is a, a good bit one. better. Yeah, that was a good one. That was good. Yeah, one. another one of my you favorites. Know, oh. you know, I mean, God, I love The Empath. It's such a beautiful show. Um, there's a few. Hey, listen. Now Spock's brain for me. I took about 20 minutes of that show and put it on in premiere and put a laugh track to it. <laughs> Does it work? And it is fantastic with a laugh track. It is fantastic with a laugh track. I also did it with a piece of the action. That's oh, another of my favorites, that's, too. That's I mean, I, I love hey, that. Hey, uh, hey, that was a good one. Yeah, I like that one. Of course, it's one of the all-time greats. Yeah. You but, put the laugh track? Yeah, I put a, you couldn't tell it was a comedy? Oh my God, it's a comedy, but you don't need a laugh yeah, track for that one. That's why I put a laugh track on it. Oh, all right, all because right. I said, oh my God, this show was directed by James Comack. James Comack did Barney Miller. He did, uh, uh, I think he may have been involved with Welcome Back Hotter, uh, uh, The Courtship of Eddie's Father. He was a stand up comic. And I watched that show and I said, this is cut and timed and set up exactly like a sitcom. Exactly. And I can see it's a guy who knows comedy, James Comack. Yeah. And it, the only thing, yeah. all it needs is a laugh track. <laughs> and I got a laugh track that was a rowdy audience, almost like Married with Children. <laughs> and like if if Jojo Krakow was throwing the darts over his shoulder with a mirror, at Bella Ox mix, mm-hmm. you know, that, yeah, the that target bit, yeah, that bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Laugh track. And then the door opens and Kirk comes in. I have the audience screaming and cheering and applauding. Yeah! <laughs> it's so great. It is really, it's perfect. See, I did it with Spock's brain because Spock's brain's horrible and it made it better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the action because that show was designed like like a comedy. Well, it was I meant to have, but, it, but, it was pl- but it was played for serious. Not really. No. It isn't played serious. I didn't think it was played I, seriously. No, it isn't. I mean, yeah. you know, hey, uh, yeah, you got that Scotty. You know, oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah, not a piece of the action. I'm talking Spock's brain. Spock's brain huh? was played seriously. Spock's oh, yeah, brain was, was played seriously. Yeah, piece of the action wasn't played. No, no. Yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, be- the best thing about Spock's brain is it's the first time they got the rear view projection working on the bridge and they were using it for that map of the system. Remember, oh, they had that little the light. Briefing thing they never used on that screen. They did it so because they had a rear view projection going on on the bridge, it 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 freed up the camera. If they were shooting a, uh, uh, if they were going to mat in a star background with moving stars, you had to be careful how you move the camera. Right. But with the rear view projection, the camera could go anywhere, and there were shots of the bridge in Spock's brain you never saw before. So for me, that was like a bonanza of new angles I've never seen. That's interesting. I've got to watch that now and check for that. That's interesting. I, I could probably listen to you talk about Star Trek all day, but I, I've got to bring up the last question here. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, you're, you're getting ready to do that uh, class where you'll be teaching how to uh, reboot um, existing properties. And I That's wonder, is there one... 
What's that? Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, is there one uh, property from the past that you haven't touched on that you'd like to give a visual redesign? Yes. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Oh. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'd like to see that show done seriously. I, I wouldn't change the sea view too much. That's That that freaking thing is gorgeous still. Right? Uh, I'd sleek it up a little bit. You know, I, I was so disappointed when I saw, what was the show, that uh, that Spielberg show with uh, Roy... That That's one I'd like to see. Uh, another thing I would love, although I hear that someone's going to be doing it, is Fantastic Voyage, the movie. Oh, wow. I still think is one of the old, is an incredible. There's only one moment in the movie that contemporary audiences laugh at. And that's when they put all those little antennas alongside, what's his name, head. They have all the radar antennas. They put this... U-shaped thing around the guy they're operating on the head, and there's all these little tiny radar like dishes. Uh, radar dishes, and that gets a laugh every time. <laughs> but the rest of the movie holds up and plus. I was an adolescent when I saw that film, and Raquel Welch in a skin diving suit. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> the Made an impression. Ripped off by all of these guys it was like as bad as dirty as it gets back then. <laughs> <laughs> I, now you know the thing is that I don't know if you remember the Proteus, the submarine in Fantastic Voyage is such an amazing design. It looks, you totally buy it. You totally, and it's complete inside and out with those big windows. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is just, go back and look at it. It is incredible and holds up today. That's what I mean, like the, the difference between a show where they really take it, whoever did it has it in their DNA, they're really serious, as opposed to someone who just, you know, uh, they're not really science fiction people. Uh, it's just anything weird and and and, and swoopy must be science fiction. Um, but that goes back to Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, the Nautilus for Disney, mm -hmm. which is still one of the all-time great ship designs. It does not go out of style. It is stunning, absolutely stunning. I've got a I've got a, a six-foot one that I keep in. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, but ship. the thing was that both of them were designed. Uh, by the same guy, uh, Max and both pictures were directed by the same guy, and that's why it has that sense of realism. Uh, Harper Goff was the designer of the Nautilus. Walt Disney wanted a sleek, a uh, cigar-shaped looking submarine, and and Harper, who lives this, lives and eats this stuff, knew he wanted rivets and plates and stuff, and he convinced his, he made a model over the weekend and convinced him that was the way to go. When uh, Richard Fleischer got hired to do Fantastic Voyage because of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, he brought Harper Goff with him, and Goff designed the Proteus. And you look at those two subs in you. That is just a masterpiece. That is going to look good in 100 years from now. It won't matter. Anyway, okay, I'm blathered enough. No, you, no you've blabbered you, an exactly perfect amount. We are just now coming up on an hour and a half, and that is exactly where I wanted it. So you, again, Doug Drexler, uh, your, your golden touch. Uh, even goes over to podcasting. So congratulations. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on behalf of everybody at Guard Frequency, thanks, uh, Doug, for stopping by and uh, appreciate it. I'm going to turn the mic over to you. Uh, anything else you want to say or do or uh, plug your class? Anything else you want to talk about before we go? <laughs> class. That's still a maybe. I don't know whether oh, okay. that's going to happen. Well, yet. You know, uh, we'll advertise but, for you, man. Let's, let's, we'll get, I'm, we'll get the I'm some at business. a point in my life. What's that? Oh, you know what? If and when it happens, we could talk about it. But, uh, uh, you know, I just want to be able to, I just want it to be said somewhere that Doug Drexler taught a class on where they f***. <laughs> <laughs> and we are going to leave so it there. 
We're gonna leave it there. That's you know that's a mic drop right there. All right, Doug. Thanks for stopping by. Reduce thrust. This is episode 164 of the Death... <laughs> and Ostron says... No, and no, Henry and says... It says O on my paper. This week we're skipping, that's me? No, 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 the line above it. The whole thing isn't crossed out. Oh, I apologize. So, what do we have in store this week? And my name. And we check out the 2.3... Commanders that is now... Uh, that's worded very oddly, I blame Lennon. And we check out 2.3, the Commanders, now that it's live, and I flubbed that as well. Ugh, starting out wonderfully. He's right. He is right. Which he were you talking about? Henry was right. Okay. I mean, Can I get that recorded we to can fly play back whenever I want to hear it? Henry was right. I love it. Yeah, we'll we'll just slice that out of the recording and yeah. we'll send it to you specially. Nice. No, it's it's not going to be in the show at all, but we'll cut <laughs> it out and give it to you. Then iterate the female characters into a skeleton. Uh, <laughs> I guess I can stop my recording then. I wasn't even paying attention.